learnt level. And if you actually look at the regulations, you see that they, they become almost shorter and less comprehensive as we move from each alert level to the next. So the question was, how relevant are the previous sets of regulations pre-amendment? So how relevant are the level four regulations vis-a-vis -vis the level three and level two regulations and as such as you work your way through? So essentially how the government has approached the amendment to the regulations is by inserting a new chapter to each previous set of regulations. So if you look at the, the regulations under alert level four, when we move to alert level three, instead of amending the entire alert level four regulations, they simply, or the government decided to just simply insert a specific chapter dealing with what you can and can't do under alert level three. And the same has now happened under alert level two. So the short answer there is if a specific amendment or a specific chapter dealing with a particular alert level doesn't deal with certain issues or doesn't do away with certain restrictions that were mentioned in the previous sets of regulations, then you can assume that those specific provisions are still at play. So in essence, what that means is you have to read all the regulations together um, and where the amendments to previous sets of regulations specifically do not mention or lessen restrictions on certain things, then the previous sets of regulations would still apply to that particular issue. So that is quite interesting if you look at the, the alert level two regulations, because me, me being, being, being one of these, these types of people, the first thing I did when, 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 the, when the level two regulations came in is I went to go see what the provisions with regards to, for example, the sale of tobacco and alcohol products are. So you know what you can and can't do, because we know for a fact that obviously tobacco sales and tobacco product sales have now been recommenced under alert level two. So I was expecting to find provisions in the alert level two regulations saying the ban on the sale of tobacco and tobacco products has now been done away with, but you're not going to find that. Oddly enough, the, uh, the lifting of the ban on tobacco products has not been mentioned in the level two regulations at all. So the assumption there is, is if the particular regulations aimed at this particular um, alert level doesn't deal with something or doesn't specifically uh, restrict that particular right, then that right is fully enforced. Uh, so what I'm essentially saying is if the alert level two regulations don't mention the ban on tobacco at all, then you can assume that that ban has been lifted. Yeah, and I think, you know, as we've noted before, these regulations are primarily a limitation of rights um, and not, you know, they are uh, prohibitive legislation, not enabling legislation um, for, for most, uh, for, you know, your average citizen, the member of the public. So as Peter says, where you are not specifically told not to do something, um, you can assume the contrary and that you are now free to, uh, to do the activity that you had planned to do. Um, maybe just to add to that, uh, just in terms of the structure of the, uh, the current alert level, uh, the chapter, um, we're now dealing with a new chapter in the regulations, that's chapter five. Um, chapter three and chapter four dealt with, uh, in, in chronological order, um, alert level four and alert level three, um, whereas chapter two uh, contains the general provisions applicable during the state of disaster. So in the position that we find ourselves now, um, we are primarily concerned with chapter two, the general provisions, and uh, chapter five, the uh, provisions uh, specifically applicable during this uh, alert level two. Um, in addition to amending the regulations, 
if you look at uh, Government Notice 891, the notice uh, which carried the amendment on the 17th of August, um, uh, Minister Lamini Zuma specifically uh, brought into effect uh, Alert Level 2 and uh, stated that Alert Level 2 will apply nationally from 12 o'clock um, on, on 18 August 2020. Um, and I think it's probably worth noting that uh, from a disaster management point of view, the reason why the regulations, uh, or presumably the reason why the regulations as a whole aren't amended as we go from stage to stage or alert level to alert level, is that uh, there was this um, much threatened uh, idea that different geographical and provincial areas or hotspots, designated hotspots, could um, move from different alert levels. Uh, so, for example, uh, there was quite a bit of talk earlier on that the Western Cape um, experiencing an early peak of the pandemic might be uh, put onto uh, alert level four, alert level five, something more restrictive, while the rest of the country had already moved on to alert level two. Um, at this stage, no specific province has been designated a, a hotspot such that it has not moved um, uh, uh, onto alert level two. So as of 17 August, or well, I suppose um, one minute past midnight on 18th of August, we're all on alert level two. Um, yeah, so I think that's sort of the general comments about the... Uh, uh, the regulations dealt with. We won't be revisiting the um, the regulations which have which we've already addressed in previous webinars. The sort of more general ones. Um, what we will do is just be running through the uh, the amended regulations. What we've decided to do is just split them up um, quite conveniently. Um, I'll be looking at regulations 49 to 56, and then and Peter will be doing the more interesting ones from and starting on um, Regulation 57. Um, I'm not going to be sharing my screen, but if you would like me to, please, um, I suppose you can drop it in the Q&A section or, uh, yeah. Uh, so then turning to the specific regulations and starting off, um, <clears throat> I think Regulation 50 is the first substantive amendment. Uh, so Regulation 50 deals with the movement of persons, and if we compare that with the previous Regulation 33, we've seen uh, quite a substantial change. Um, regulation 33 essentially confined every person to their place of residence, uh, but that was made subject to certain exceptions. Um, if, we, if we look at the old Regulation 33, so now no longer... Uh, in effect, um, a person was only allowed to leave their place of residence to perform um, essential services or permitted services, uh, to travel to and from work, um, to buy goods and services, to move children, uh, and the notorious exercise limitation of Regulation 33.1e, um, exercise between the hours of 6 a.m. and 6 p.m., um, other allowances were to attend a place of worship, to attend a school, or travel for leisure purposes as allowed. Um, the regulation on movement of persons, which we now found, our, find ourselves faced with, um, uh, Regulation 50, 
is, is a lot less prohibitive. Um, the default position is that uh, parties may move freely. Um, and what Regulation 50 now says is that every person is confined to his or her place of residence from 10 p.m. until 4 a.m. daily, um, except where a person has been granted a permit uh, or to perform, perform a service um, as listed on the table three or is attending to a security or medical emergency. So there's a critical distinction here, which must be drawn between the previous regulation 33, which um, gave persons limited abilities or limited reasons to leave their place of residence. Now the situation is quite different. You can leave your residence for almost any reason, or, you know, for any reason, um, subject to the mandatory protocols in public places under Regulation 51, and uh, subject to the fact that the uh, the curfew is still in effect from 10 p.m. until 4 a.m. daily. Um, I think we, uh, similar to what Peter mentioned about the the fact that tobacco sales were not specifically uh, mentioned under these, so you know the the reopening of Alert Level Two. Um, where we look at things like exercise, exercise was previously allowed subject to uh, time and exceptions. Um, now, although not specifically mentioned, you are free to exercise uh, as long as you do so outside of the hours of 10 p.m. and 4 a.m. Um, and that's sort of uh, changing the, the default position of what you can and can't do really applies to any other activity which you, you might want to busy yourself about with. Um, Peter, any comments on movement of persons? No, not not at this stage. I think, um, and I think you're, you're you're obviously still getting to this. But um, chatting on on you know where you can exercise, uh, it's common knowledge that the majority of public spaces have now been have now been reopened to the public. The majority of people yeah. can now go and exercise on the beach or exercise at a public park. But what is very interesting is that the government has still introduced this issue of vigorous exercise. So you are absolved of the necessity of wearing a mask if you are exercising in a public space, provided that the exercise or the extent of the exercise that you are undertaking is vigorous. Um, quite strangely, and uh, you know, between Alert Level 3 and the Alert Level 2 regulations, the Minister of Health was supposed to deliver further directives which defined uh, this term vigorous. Um, and these, th those have still not been forthcoming. So they've now been mentioned in the second set of regulations in a row, and we still have no idea as to what form of exercise would, would, you know, amount to, to, to that particular degree of exercise. What, what, what type of exercise is vigorous or not? And when are you required to wear a face mask when exercising in a public space or not? <laughs> so, yeah, just, uh, just something to note there. Exercise without a face mask at your own peril, and if doing so, do it vigorously. Um, yeah. I myself find that the exercise regulation or found that the exercise regulation prohibiting exercise um, after 6 p.m. and before 6 a.m. was quite constrictive. I think for mm. those of us working office uh, jobs, the idea of leaving, uh, leaving office sometimes before 6 p.m. to get out and get back to your car before 6 p.m. was somewhat problematic. So I'm quite yes, happy yeah. that that um, more restrictive uh, position has been taken away. Yeah. 
Matt, just before um, we move on, I see we have a question on, on the curfew and the movement of persons. Um, I'm just going to read it out loud so we can all, can all hear it. Okay. Can I leave my place of residence outside the curfew hours for work, i.e. work only closes at 10 p.m.? Yes, you may. So um, that's a very good question. Uh, the, the, um, the curfew is limited for... Uh, or the curfew applies to all persons leaving their place of residence except, and I read here from Regulation 50, uh, where a person has been granted a permit, which corresponds with Form 2 of Annexure A. So if you quickly scroll, scroll down to Table 3, um, Form 2 Annexure A sets out uh, essentially uh, your place of work will have to um, endorse and sign a form authorizing you to be you know, on the roads at that time. So yes, if your work causes you to be outside of, the, of your um, home during the curfew hours, you are able to uh, to do so. Um, Peter, do you want to just knock that one off as being resolved? Yep. Uh, <clears throat> okay, so moving on, uh, mandatory protocols in uh, when in a public space, um, that's Regulation 51. Here we don't have anything new. This is a regulation which was echoed under the previous chapter. Um, uh, essentially, when in a public place, uh, all persons must wear face masks and uh, your uh, persons may not be allowed to enter into a public place, use public transport or enter into a public building um, if not wearing a face mask. This one's relatively simple and, as I said, not a big change from what we had before. Um, regulation 52 deals with the contentious issues issue of uh, attendance of funerals. Um, I think this has been a, I used the word contentious, I think it's been uh, in a part of a, uh, the national dialogue quite a lot, the idea that um, you know, a person uh, could be sick or in hospital and you couldn't visit them, but if they were to, uh, to pass away, uh, you and 25 or 30 or 40 or whatever it was at the time, relatives could essentially attend a party and um, commiserate. Um, the new regulation 52 is far less restrictive um, than the previous uh, funeral regulation, which was regulation 35. Um, regulation 35.1 uh, set out uh, various familial relationships which essentially limited which party, which, what type of person could uh, attend a funeral. So um, I'm going to read them here just to compare it to the new regulation, but essentially um, the persons who were allowed to attend funerals were limited to spouses, children, um, children-in-law, parent of the deceased, um, siblings, and grandparents of the deceased. Um, so essentially, you know, friends um, and more extended family relations were prohibited from attending funerals under the previous alert level three. Um, the new regulation 52 is far less restrictive um, <clears throat> and uh, only really limits the funeral uh, attendance to 50 persons, uh, stating that such a, uh, such a funeral will not be regarded as a gathering. Um, and then the same sort of uh, adherence to health protocols and social distancing measures are applicable. Um, 
And yeah, the only real limitation which has survived under alert level two now is that night vigils remain not allowed. So if, for example, the ANC were to um, celebrate a, a fallen struggle hero, um, this time it looks like they probably could do so, um, notwithstanding that not all of them are spouses, children, uh, or parents of, of um, uh, I, I'm going to get the name wrong, Andrew Mlangeni, sorry. Mm. Um, Let's just hope they, they pick their speakers better this time around. <laughs> yeah. Um, okay, so unless there are questions on funerals, I'm going to push ahead to uh, the new regulation 53, which is the eviction and demolition of places of residence. Um, for those in litigation, I think you will be uh, buoyed by the new and, again, less restrictive alert level 2 provisions relating to evictions and demolitions of place of residence. Um, uh, I'm going to read Regulation 53.1, or, or rather the latter part of it, but essentially a person may not be evicted uh, unless a competent court has granted an order authorizing the eviction or demolition. Now, again, Peter, you and I spoke about this off-air, but it's a bit of a strange um, stipulation to have that you can only evict in terms of a court order. Um, we exactly, already know when, that, when that happens naturally. Yeah. So uh, it's a little bit of a strange one, but it essentially confirms uh, what we already know um, uh, from the Prevention of Illegal Eviction Act uh, that a person may only be evicted in terms of a, a competent court order. Um, there are regulations issued at 53.2, uh, which essentially allow the court some sort of discretion um, to suspend or stay an order for eviction or demolition. Um, and many of those are related to the state of the disaster. Um, but again, it, it, it's, a, it's really a sort of 180 degree turn uh, or flipping on the head of what, what was in place, whereas uh, under alert level three and alert level four, there was a hard bar to evictions um, unless a court order granted it in some sort of special circumstance. Here we have it the other way, that um, unless there are special circumstances, the court will grant and will execute an order for eviction. Um, I think the sheriffs yeah. are going to be very, very busy during alert level two. That's about time. <laughs> um, I think uh, to a certain extent, Regulation 53 can be read with Regulation 54, uh, and that's pertaining to rental housing. Um, some of these provisions seem to have sort of flown under the radar and perhaps haven't been as newsworthy as, newsworthy as they should be. Um, essentially, the powers of the Rental Housing Tribunal um, established under the Rental Housing Act have been extended. Uh, and in terms of the Rental Housing Act, we have uh, certain prohibited practices or unfair practices, um, which uh, landlords are um, prohibited or uh, discouraged from engaging in. Um, and the, 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 the breadth of uh, unfair practices has now been expanded in terms of regulation 54.2. Um, I think some of these are quite, uh, or could prove quite contentious. 
Um, as I said, I don't think they've received perhaps the newsworthy attention that they should have. So um, Regulation 54.2a is essentially declaring now the termination of services um, by a landlord um, to be an unfair practice. Now, that could be the ceasing of um, you know, providing electricity, providing water, and providing refuse removal, other services which a landlord is usually called upon to allow access to for his tenant. Um, and we have a, a, a situation now where a landlord may not terminate those services without providing reasonable notice and an opportunity to make um, representations. Uh, the landlord has to reasonably and in good faith make necessary arrangements arrangements to reach an agreement regarding alternative payments um, and has to provide for ongoing provision of basic services during the national state of disaster. Um, I'm just going to finish up the other provisions of Regulation 54.2 and then Peter, I'd like to get your thoughts on some of these. Mm -hmm. um, so 54.2b says that a landlord may not impose a penalty for late payment of rental where the default is caused by the disaster. Um, that one, I think, will put an opinion, I think, also fairly contentious. Yeah, um, Regulation 54.2c, a landlord uh, must engage reasonably and in good faith to make arrangements, and I'm going to read this verbatim, uh, to cater for the exigencies of the disaster. Uh, I think that's incredibly wide-ranging and... Yeah, very nice and broad and very nice vague. Yeah. Yeah, it's very... And then even, even worse, on the subject of vagueness, um, any other conduct prejudicing the ongoing occupancy of a place of residence and any person or prejudicing the ability of any person to comply with the applicable restrictions on movement. Um, so... I think, yeah, C and D, we have very vague legislation, um, which I think is, you know, going to hold the landlord over a barrel for uh, needing or to engage with his tenant. Um, if I look at 54.2A and B, we're in a position where a landlord may not be able to terminate services, even though a tenant hasn't paid. Um and also a landlord would be precluded from imposing a penalty even where his uh, rental or lease agreement provides for that penalty. Um, and what I suppose concerns me more is that the wording used throughout the section is, uh, you know, where the default is caused by the disaster. Now, you know, what exactly is caused by the disaster? Um, it's one thing exactly. if I ran a hair salon and, as a result of that, I, I couldn't uh, pay my um, uh, my rental. I, I perhaps lost out income. Um, but where do you draw the line? Where do you, you know, how how you know how does an enforcement officer or someone sitting in, as the rental housing tribunal declare that mm. the default default was caused by the disaster? Because um, yeah, essentially, what you're what you're looking at now is that. You know, under the previous regulations, if, if you use the example of you being a hairdresser, for example, you, you, with regards to your commercial landlord, you, you could have quite easily raised the defense, or not particularly a defense, but, uh, you know, the, the, the doctrine of force majeure or, you know, impossibility of performance. 
And, you know, we've, we have advised many clients of this particular issue and helped clients get some form of remission of, of commercial rent or to suspend their, you know, the reciprocal obligations of both parties under a commercial lease. What this now does is that it brings residential leases within, within the same kind of umbrella where there is a, a, an easy tailor-made, particularly vague um, defense created by, by, by regulation or by law for, for a tenant. And um, as you mentioned very aptly, Matt, how do you, how do you define what, what type of result or what form of, of, of payment prohibition is caused by the exigencies of, of the disaster? Where do you draw the line? I mean, ultimately, if you were going to create this type of provision in, in a regulation, at least attempt at setting the parameters of what, of what, a, um, what a landlord is entitled to do and under which circumstances a, a, a tenant is, is able to exercise its rights under, under this particular section. But leaving it as broad as it is, it's definitely going to, going to create issues, especially if we find ourselves in a state of disaster that is going to be extended past the 15th of September, you know, even, even, even further. Um, so yeah, no, it, it, it definitely, to my mind, creates more difficulties than it, than, than it does uh, solve them. Yeah, um, I see we have some questions coming in. I think if we can just, uh, the one regards to uh, interprovincial travel and the other regards um, the position of a landlord. I think if it's all right, I, I realize we often run out of time on these things, but maybe let's push through the uh, the regulation that you and I had lined up to discuss. Um, I realize that I'm running quite uh, low on my allotted time, uh, so let's get back to them. But I think, um, as I said earlier, regulation 54 and 54.2 in particular and sort of um, forcing the landlord's hand in some situations and really giving quite a bit of power to the tenant. Uh, I think that is going to prove controversial yeah. um, you know, during this limited alert level two. Uh, and yeah, I mean, the it's essentially a, a form of, of legislative recognition of impossibility of performance. But to my mind, they've, they've sort of missed the point here in that, um, you know, the advice that we had given to clients during uh, the the lockdown and, and with regards to impossibility of performance was always that the impossibility is attached to um, the the ability to perform in terms of the agreement um, mm. and not merely the um, inability to pay. Yeah. Uh, you know, the fact that you lost your job during COVID does, you know, in, in a normal common law context does absolutely nothing to your ability or sorry, your obligation to make payment in terms of your lease agreement. And essential mm. regulation 54.2 has now sort of interrupted that basic common law position. Yeah. And um, so it's just something to watch over the next sort of few weeks and months and for so long as alert level two goes on. Yeah, the, I mean, the, the, the other strange thing on that issue as well, Matt, is that if you, if you do find yourself between a landlord and a, and a, and, and a tenant in a residential dispute, um, when when is that type of matter gonna gonna get to court or be heard before before the the rental housing tribunal? I mean, ultimately we we could be we could be back down to level level one, which I assume is is life back to normal by the fifteenth of September. And yeah, um, most you know, likely as, not an alert level two. Exactly. So ultimately, <clears throat> whether you know whether you're going to be able to rely on the alert level two regulations at court when they no technically no longer exist in in in, in a month's time is, is going to be a, a, another controversial issue. 
but oh, yeah, one of those things, I guess we have I to move on. I think for those tenants tuning in, please do not take this as advice to stop paying your landlord. Please earn <laughs> the side of caution and make sure payments are made. Um, okay, well then pushing ahead to gatherings, also a very contentious topic uh, throughout lockdown. Um, I'm going to skip ahead to the, the bit that I find most exciting and uh, that is under regulation 552K, uh, a social event at a place of residence subject to a limitation of 10 visitors or less. So it's been one of the remarkable uh, points of this lockdown that all gatherings were prohibited and gatherings at a stage were defined uh, as any more or anything more than, than one person being at a place and at, at a particular time which meant that um, I was, strictly speaking, uh, prohibited from visiting my parents. Um, I wasn't allowed to visit friends. Um, but going you know, throughout this process, I could attend a work function with 50 colleagues. And mm. you know, if, God forbid, one of my family members were to have passed away, I could have attended a party with 50 other people. Um, it, just, it was one of the regulations... Uh, Really didn't make sense to me um, and it is really nice to see now that government has eased up on that so social events social visits uh, at someone's place of residence and subject to a limitation of 10 visitors a very welcome addition to our, our current yeah. situation just a note on that Matt. it's very interesting that that uh, the regulations utilize the word visitors and not attendees or persons so I mean if you are a household of five or six people does this particular sub-regulation allow you to have 10 visitors or are the actual residents of the property to be included in that 10-minute limit? So, I mean, if you've got eight people living on a property and uh, you're allowed 10 visitors, then you can have a party with 18 people. Um, so, yeah, just, a, just, a, just a, an interesting drafting note. It's an interesting note, and I know which way I will be uh, leaning when the compliance officer um, attends my premises. Um, yeah, I think other sort of highlights from the, uh, the gathering regulations, which are not actually, so the, the gathering regula regulations as a whole aren't uh, materially different from um, the previous gathering regulations. Uh, to a large extent, it's a, a gradual easing and a gradual opening, allowing more persons at certain events. Um, a, 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 another fairly critical uh, amendment is uh, 552J, which now allows weddings subject to a limitation of 50 persons and directions issued by the relevant cabinet member. So while briefly noting that the relevant cabinet member, I can't imagine who that would be, um, has not yet uh, issued any, any directions with regards to weddings, but it's been a particular note for um, certainly in Cape Town with a, a fairly large and prominent uh, wedding industry functioning as a um, mm. destination wedding um, you know, place of choice. Um, you know, the tourism and sort of eventing industry, which draws a, a fair amount of its income from weddings, has been absolutely decimated uh, throughout the lockdown period. So although it's perhaps not up to the full um, sort of royal weddings that we might want to be attending, uh, a return to some uh, element of uh, normality with a limitation of 50 persons. Um, 
the other big change, certainly, which I would appreciate is uh, 55-2N um, uh, and the fact that fitness centers and gyms are now open, uh, again, subject to a limitation of 50 persons or less. Uh, I think when this particular regulation was announced by Ramaphosa, uh, the, the country breathed somewhat of a, a collective sigh of relief. Um, you could almost hear people jumping in their cars to head down to the nearest Virgin Active. Um, now, you know, the, the limitation of 50 persons is potentially contentious. Um, certainly for the larger gym operators able to accommodate, mm. you know, upwards of 500 people at a venue. And that, yeah. that's very With much huge how they Exactly. Um, and often more than enough uh, for social distancing. So then the question must be asked, you know, if I have a warehouse sized facility, I'm able to ensure that there's hand sanitizer. I'm able to ensure um, that my attendees are spaced more than 1.5 meters, um, that my machines are being cleared, uh, sorry, cleaned, uh, and that everyone is wearing masks, why should I be limited to 50 persons or less when, you know, if we looked at the exercise regulations, people could go do, you know, any any form of exercise they wanted. Um, uh, the, the classic example under lockdown has been uh, at the promenade. Essentially, we could have people engaging on unarmed combat on the, on the promenade and in droves of a thousand at a time and the compliance officers would not be able to do anything about it. Um, yet, if one of the big gym operators wanted to invite 51 people into their, um, into their facilities, they would be in breach of the regulations. That's you know, something to think about there. Um, not sure whether or not this particular regulation will survive scrutiny. Yeah. Agreed. Um, the other sort of highlights coming out of uh, gatherings is that um, for those of us who like to indulge in a Friday beer, um, bars, taverns, shabines, and similar establishments uh, have now been reopened and are open to the public, uh, also subject to a limitation of 50 persons. Um, and accommodation uh, establishments and tour operators uh, are, allow are now allowed to open um, again, subject to the limitation, sorry, uh, uh, subject to a 50% limitation on the floor space available. Um, just to end off on uh, the point of gatherings, we had a similar, uh, a similar amendment came through in alert level three, and that's that an enforcement officer, um, when considering a gathering, uh, under the previous, I believe it was alert level four, an enforcement officer could arrive at a gathering and uh, take steps to uh, arrest or um, charge or detain parties at that gathering. Um, under alert level three, that softened and that same softening remains under alert level th uh, two. And that's that an, an enforcement officer, uh, when approaching a gathering, must first, as per paragraph A, order the persons at the gathering to disperse immediately, and only if the person refuses to disperse um, may they then take appropriate action subject to the Criminal Procedure Act, etc. So, um, you know, we heard rather ridiculous stories of um, people being arrested uh, for convening a gathering under Alert Level 4. Um, that will now 
those sort of stories will disappear, uh, hopefully, um, as uh, the enforcement officer must first satisfy paragraph A and order parties to disperse. Um, the only other bit I had to report on, uh, which is not particularly long, is that nightclubs are closed to the public. Uh, the the one point that I did have to make there is that uh, the regulations don't seem to deal um, sort of from a, a definition point of view uh, with what would be considered a bar, a tavern, and a nightclub. Mm. Um, I can imagine many nightclubs are now going to miraculously advertise themselves as bars or taverns. Um, and in the absence of any further and clearer legislation, I don't see how an enforcement or compliance officer um, could argue to the contrary. Um, Peter, that's my bit. Uh, to anyone who had questions, if you can just pop it through on the Q&A, we will deal with it later. But uh, yeah, with my regulations done, it's over to you, Peter. Cool. Thanks, Matt. So I'm going to start with a um, we'll start with Regulation 57, which deals with the prohibition of initiation practices. Um, so if you look at the wording of this particular regulation and how it was worded under the Level 4 and Level 3 regulations, not much has changed. And ultimately, it comes down to the fact that um, initiation practices, whether it consists of traditional circumcisions or that form of thing, are all still prohibited. Um, and I think the one inclusion in this particular provision is that a particular obligation has been placed on the National House of Traditional Leaders and Provincial Houses of Traditional Leaders to ensure that all traditional leaders within their particular jurisdiction or in their areas, along with, with um, traditional uh, surgeons or traditional um, healers, do or are made aware of, of the prohibition and don't, and don't you know, carry on with, with these types of practices despite the wording of the regulations. So not only are these particular initiation practices now confirmed again as being prohibited, but a, but a positive obligation has been placed on, on the bodies and the individuals who, who are in control, who have authority in those types of traditional affairs spheres to ensure that the particular state, stakeholders involved in conducting the actual initiation practices are duly advised of, of the prohibition and what they can and can't do um, with regards to those particular processes. Okay, then moving on to Regulation 58. Again, it's uh, very much a duplication of, of a type of regulation that was, uh, that was present in the previous alert level uh, directive. So you're looking at controlled visits by members of the public to certain institutions. So the ones that were mainly dealt with under the alert level four and alert level three regulations was the visitation by, by family members and individuals to, to, to prisoners in their holding cells and in their various visiting areas and that form of thing. So visitors or visits by members of the public to correctional uh, centers, remand detention facilities, police holding cells and military detention facilities are still prohibited. Um, but there have been one or two additions to that list, one being health establishments and facilities, except if you are an individual receiving treatment at one of those facilities um, and obviously subject to, to, to the standard health and safety protocols. And finally, in quite an interesting inclusion, the rational inclusion in my mind, is older persons' residential facilities. So you'd assume old age homes and retirement villages and, and, and those form of things. Um, visits by the public to those types of institutions, given the, you know, what you would assume is the lower, lower immunity levels of, of, of those particular individuals and existing comorbidities and those form of things, because you are dealing with elderly people. So the government has gone about seeking to restrict the amount of visitors that, 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 that can you know, go, go, go through those doors to, 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 visit, to visit those people. Again, the uh, type of standard catch-all clause 
stating that um, visits to all these particular facilities that I've just mentioned will obviously be subject to further directive published by the cabinet minister responsible for that particular sphere of, of, of regulation. Then interestingly, closure of borders. I think um, majority of us are aware that the borders are still closed. Um, we are not allowed to travel internationally, nor are we um, entitled to receive international visitors, sporting sides or that form of thing. I recently read that our national women's cricket team were prevented or barred from um, traveling to England to, to, to attend or take part in a, in, a, in, a, in a bilateral ODI series or one day international series with the England women's team. Which wasn't uh, which wasn't uh, was a difficult pull to swallow, and there was a bit of a uh, bit of uh, consternation about that as well. Um, but I think what what that confirms for us is that there'll be very little wiggle room and very little exemption for for anyone under under these particular provisions right now. Um, so just to expand on that particular regulation regarding the closure of the borders, this is Regulation Fifty Nine. And it states that during the national state of disaster, all borders of the Republic must be closed, except under certain circumstances relating to ports of entry, which have been designated by the relative uh, or the relevant cabinet minister for home affairs. And these ports are only entitled to remain open and process uh, imports and exports under the following conditions. These are the transportation of fuel, cargo and goods, the entry of foreign sea crew for the purposes of exchange of sea crew in the Republic, and then humanitarian operations, repatriations, evacuations, medical emergencies, and the movement of diplomatic staff from various international consulates and embassies and that form of thing. Then moving on to public transport, this is one of the more relevant uh, sections of the regulations that I've been assigned to deal with. So before we go into this, there's been a very strict kind of distinction drawn between what is considered long distance travel and normal travel. So what has been defined in the regulations as long distance travel as any travel on, whether, uh, on, a, on, on a public transport type of, uh, th type of <laughs> thing, for lack of a better word, that exceeds 200 kilometers. So as soon as your particular trip, whether it be in a bus or whether it be in a taxi, uh, that form of thing, if it, if it exceeds 200 kilometers, you're looking at long distance travel, and that has its own set of restrictions and limitations placed on the, uh, the attendance or the amount of people that can be present in any one of those buses or taxis, etc. So let's move on. I'm going to just quickly deal with what type of travel is allowed, the extent of, those, of, of, of that particular travel and what type of restrictions are placed on those forms of travel. So it seems like we are back to being able to travel inter and intra-provincially, whether on road or via air. Um, obviously, there will be certain restrictions as to the amount of people that can be present on any particular airplane, for example, at any one time. And there will obviously be unique and distinct health and safety protocols for every form of public transport. So a very pertinent one and one that I think, given you know, just the nature of South African society that we will be dealing with is bus and taxi transport. There is obviously a concern on the part of government and especially with regards to health and safety protocols that now that there is going to be an influx of people traveling to and from work, now that most business sectors are entitled to recommence trading, there is obviously a concern that the public transport system may be, may be overwhelmed. And, uh, you know, also whether they have the capacity to ensure that this new influx of people traveling to and from work, they are adequately protected by, by, by the necessary measures that public transporters have, have to take on these various forms of transport. 
So buses and taxi services may not carry more than 70% of their capacity for long distance travel. So as soon as your bus or your taxi is set to travel more than 200 kilometers, they are only entitled to take on 70% of their normal capacity. What this means for taxis is a, is a different thing because I think the standard, uh, the standard Capacity for taxis are about 15 people, but they normally go anywhere up to 25 or 30. So, so what, uh, whether they will actually be compliant to that regulation in practice is going to be an interesting, interesting thing to see. Um, then obviously 100% capacity is allowed in bus and taxi travel for any, any, any distance uh, under 200 to 200 kilometers. Beneficial one and the one that we've all been looking forward to is the new allowance just, Sorry, Peter. Sorry. Yeah. Um, I've been muted. I just wanted to uh, note that we had a question from a Pierre Schuster, uh, sorry, yes. a, an, an, an anonymous attendee um, who did ask about interprovincial travel. And yes. the question is uh, Does a person need to go into isolation upon returning home from that travel? Um, I figured we might as well deal, uh, deal with it now as we're on that section. Exactly. Yeah, well, I, I, I think ultimately the, the short answer to that is probably not, unless you know for a fact that you have come into contact with someone who is suspected of being a carrier of the virus or someone who has tested positive. Um, ultimately, with, with the, the, the interprovincial borders being, being opened, it would be somewhat counterproductive to require everyone that is returning from a trip, whether it be for leisure or for business, to self-isolate. So I would assume, and I think we can safely say, that just by virtue of the fact that you are traveling between provinces, that does not mean automatically that you have to place yourself into any form of self-isolation or quarantine when you return to your, to your place of residence. Only if there is a substantial opportunity or substantial chance that you came into contact with someone who is suspected of, of, of being a carrier of the disease, disease, or if you know for a fact that you came into contact with someone that tested positive. In which case... Um the specific regulations relating to isolation and quarantine, which I think a regulation seven would apply. Um, yeah. So I, I think, yeah, the long and the short uh, answer uh, to that question, anonymous attendee, uh, is that no interprovincial travel in and of itself does not require isolation or a quarantine. Um, yeah, cool. Thanks, Peter. That's it. Great. So, as we all know, the sale of alcohol has been allowed, but very similar to that very short window of, of hope we had under the level, level three regulations when alcohol sales were, were permitted for about two weeks before they were very cruelly and uh, you know, unexpectedly taken away. Um, so, alcohol sales at any license or any particular seller of, 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 of alcohol that is an off-license type situation. So your, so your normal bottle stores where you cannot actually sit down and, and enjoy your drink, they are only entitled to sell alcohol between the hours of nine and five, very similar to, those, to the restrictions on the, on the previous regulations, and only from Monday to Thursday. So given that it's 10 to six, if uh, any of you haven't yet stocked up on your, on your drinks for the weekend, you'll only be able to do so on Monday again, unfortunately. So obviously there is a, a restriction if you are a bar or a shabine or a tavern that is an unlicensed or an on-site licensed uh, operation. There the only limitation would, would be, would be the, 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 the national curfew. So you are entitled to sell alcohol for on-site consumption during your normal working hours, provided that those working hours do not exceed or go past 10 o'clock. So the limitation on 
on the, the sale of alcohol for those that do not have on-site consumption type licenses is between nine and five from Monday to Thursdays. And if you do have an on-site consumption license, you can essentially sell alcohol for consumption on-site Monday right through to Sunday, provided that, you're, that, that, that you, you don't sell after 10 o'clock at night. Um, then the, moving on to the next amendment that I'm dealing with is the operation of the economic sector. Um, good news for most who have been, uh, who have been prohibited from, from, from exercising or taking part in their particular trade under the, under the lockdown and the various regulations is that most sectors, uh, most business sectors are now entitled to recommence their trade and to, and to commence with, uh, with, 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 with trading. Um, there are one or two caveats, um, obviously, with uh, anticipating a huge influx of, of employees back to their workplaces. So there has been a specific inclusion in the regulation dealing with employers who employ 100 plus employees. So in that situation, if you are an employer that have, you know, that, that employs 100 plus employees and where many of those employees find themselves in a shared space or in a type of bullring type cubicle setup, then you are required under the regulations to ensure that all 100 of those employees, for example, are not in attendance at work at any one time. So you are required to look at staggering work hours, looking at implementing some form of shift system, but just simply ensuring that your offices are not, are not overwhelmed and that that does not compromise the integrity of the um, workplace health and safety protocols that you are by law required to instill in your, in, in your workplace. A similar type of inclusion has been made, and I would think this is a, a relatively you know, common, common sense inclusion, would be that obviously special remedies and measures need to be taken if a specific employer has employees that uh, exceed the age of 60. Obviously, those, those types of individuals are more likely to contract the disease given that they may have existing comorbidities or some form of compromised immune system. So in those circumstances, it would still be recommended that employers have employees who have exceeded the age of 60 still work from home, if possible, or that they work in a specific part of the building at the workplace that, that does not necessarily allow for them to be in constant contact with other employees. Then I'm not going to go through the various provisions dealing with the compliance officer in the workplace and the role of the compliance officer and the compliance plan that needs to be drawn up with regards to the phasing in of employees return to work. We have dealt with this in two of our previous webinars under the alert level four and level three regulations, and they haven't changed much. Essentially, uh, every workplace is still obliged to appoint a compliance officer, and that compliance officer is obliged to develop a plan, a written plan, dealing with the phasing in of the return of employees to the workplace, how many employees will be allowed at the workplace at any one time, when all employees in the workplace can be, can be in attendance, the types of health and safety protocols in place in any, in any workplace, and obviously the keeping of a written copy of that particular um, compliance plan to ensure that if an enforcement official or compliance officer does sneakily rock up at your door one day with a little surprise attack, you can ensure that you have the documentation to, 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 to confirm your compliance. Um, if I might just, uh, hang on. Uh, sorry, Peter, if I might just jump in there. Um, I think as with uh, the, the, the bulk of the regulations issued under alert level two, um, it's really a, a sort of a relaxation of regulations which were already in place. 
Um, and in respect of compliance officers and uh, uh, sort of in the, in the employment and work environment, um, there has been a change. Uh, if you if you consider alert level two's um, table of economic exclusions, it's a lot more open um, than it was previously. So the mm. the attitude now is that you may do any sort of work. Um, persons who are able to work from home must continue to do so. Um, and and work is really subject to to health protocols, social distancing, etc. So there there is a, a gradual sort of uh, reopening and relaxation of the the previous regulations. Yeah, surely. Um. Okay, Peter. Well, that was actually going to be was... just my my last point was just to quickly discuss what business sectors and what type of businesses are still not entitled to trade. Um, which we feel very sorry for, given that there's been a gradual relaxation return to, to, to uh, you know, business enterprises for, for, for most sectors. And these are, as Matt mentioned earlier, obviously nightclubs. The nightclub industry um, will not be entitled to operate. And I assume that is, that, that is given the, um, the core hours that they trade. I think I remember from my, from my, my studying days that uh, the drawling at a nightclub only really gets going from about 10 or 11 o'clock onwards. And given the level two regulations, we are all supposed to be nicely confined within the four walls of our homes at 10 o'clock. So as Matt mentioned, you'll probably find that a lot of nightclubs will now start opening their doors earlier and closing their doors before 10 and taking on more of a role of a tavern or a bar or a shabine, whatever the case may be. Then obviously all international um, passenger airfare is, is not allowed. So those, those uh, industries that operate in the international airfare travel for leisure purposes sphere will not be entitled to operate. Also, the, um, the shipping for leisure, the cruise type, uh, type operators, if they are looking at, uh, at international travel for leisure purposes, they are also not entitled to operate. And then very sadly, um, any competitive sports events will not be, even though they are still able to, to, to con the, the, the type of pro provincial contest will still be able to, able to run because there's no international travel required. But um, all international sporting events are, are barred, obviously, until our, our international borders have been opened. And if you are dealing with, with, with provincial competitions, then we also know that no spectators are allowed there and only the teams themselves, their management teams and, you know, journalists and those, and those um, camera crews are, are allowed at the ground to no one else, unfortunately. So I think, yeah, I think that's it from me, Matt. I think we've covered all the regulations. Okay. Um, if we could just, uh, we seem to be plus minus on time. We did have two um, questions come through, which I said we'd uh, try and deal with before the session ends. Um, I think the first question from Pierre Schuster seems to have come through in relation to my comments on uh, Regulation 54 and the sort of amended unfair practices uh, uh, of, of the Rental Housing Act. Um, and Pierre's question is, what is the legal position of the landlord if he himself can show loss of income and, as a result, is unable to provide the services to his tenant resulting from the state of disaster? So, in a, in, in a common law position, if a landlord is, um, uh, is unable to provide services, and I think maybe for the purpose of this discussion, it's limited to um, electricity, uh, and water, uh, water sanitation. Um, these are services which are often provided for in the uh, in the rental agreement, and um, 
if a if a tenant is not paying for those services, um, uh, the the landlord is in limited circumstances allowed to uh, stop providing those. Um, this regulation fifty four, I think, is going to very much muddy the waters because um, I think it, it's very reasonable that there will be landlords out there who are now unable to um, to provide services uh, to the tenants like electricity and water, especially where we have a, a tenant that's not paying. Um, what I do see at Regulation 54.2c is um, somewhat of a uh, somewhat of a saving provision in that, that um, tenants themselves are charged with uh, engaging reasonably and in good faith to make arrangements to cater for the exigencies of the disaster. So perhaps it could be said that tenants have an obligation to engage with the landlord, so perhaps to limit payments uh, of, of rental and to prioritize payments made to electricity, water, etc. Mm. Um, as I said, I think it's going to be very difficult to deal with these. I think um, the rental housing tribunal is potentially going to be overrun with these sort of matters. You can imagine a lot of people who've lost their livelihoods, who've lost their income are going to be battling to pay rental. Um, uh, I know that um, in a sort of an eviction uh, context where landlords can be accused of um, unlawfully preventing access to electricity and water, um, a landlord is able to approach a court and get an order against a tenant to prevent, uh, sorry, to essentially stop um, or, or limit the supply of electricity and water to uh, the sort of constitutional minimum. Um, not particularly helpful if you're battling with turnover to incur the cost of a high court application. Um, but in theory, there is recourse there. Um, I consider that question answered live, Pierre. Sorry, it's not a particularly uh, helpful answer. Um, these regulations are sort of two days old. So I think um, the quagmire brought on by Regulation 54.2 is uh, still very much fresh to us. Um, yeah, and um, just on that as well, Pierre, <coughs> it must also be remembered that if we're dealing with a commercial lease, for example, the issue of force majeure or impossibility of performance works both ways. So if for some reason the, the, the landlord himself can't, can't render services because of the impact of of, of the regulations themselves, for example, if there's a prohibition on, on a particular service or the type of industry in which the, the, the tenant finds itself, and they themselves can, 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 can raise that, that particular doctrine because the effect of the doctrine of force majeure or impossibility of performance is to suspend reciprocal performance, not just performance from one side. Um, so that remedy, especially in the context of a, of, of a commercial lease, is still available to you. Obviously, provided that the impossibility is true and that it is um, a legal impossibility enforced through the regulations. Thanks, Peter. Um, we have uh, one more question, which I think unless someone else uh, sends through, we will close on. Um, the question here is, if a particular cabinet member has not issued directions, can the business continue as per only what the regulations say? Um, and uh, the question goes on to say that there are conversations happening besides, behind the scenes 
which are not the law of general application. So can we ignore utterances from a department official if it is a not if it is not a formal direction from a minister? So I think sort of working backwards there, I would always ignore utterances from a department official if it is not yes. a formal direction from a minister. Um, you know, when Ramaphosa made his announcement uh, on Saturday at 8 p.m., the bars did not immediately open. They only did so after the regulations were issued mm. and published um, on the 17th, and actually they only came into effect on the 18th. So yeah. I think I mean, it's... I for my part, it's been one of the um, more more annoying features of this lockdown was is that there, there's often been a lag between what was announced by government and what actually came into effect, and sometimes there was a, a you know a glaring inconsistency. The more you know, the notorious one was Ramaphosa going on stage on a Saturday telling us all or telling smokers um, that they would be able to buy cigarettes in the following week, and Lamini Zuma famously. Um, I don't want to say it went around his back, but published regulations which outlawed the uh, or continued to outlaw the, the sale of tobacco products. Um, and yeah, I mean there, there have been other other examples of of missteps that that have happened very similarly. I mean if you if you think about it recently, I can't remember exactly which cabinet minister it was. I actually believe it may have been it may have been Ben Taylor, where he mentioned that if you are an individual not wearing a face mask in public, then you could be arrested for that. And I mean that if you look at the regulations, that, that is completely wrong. You, it's, it's not a criminal offense to not wear a face mask in, in public. Um, or well, it, it, it wasn't under the previous regulations when, when that statement was, was made anyway. Um, and I think a similar statement was also made by Big Taylor where he mentioned that if you, smoking itself is, uh, is, is not allowed under the regulations and, and that simply was, was just incorrect. So, I mean, if you, so to, to bring that back to the question, those are utterances by individuals who, you know, we're not responsible for the actual preparation of the regulations when, when they were issued. So it comes down to a simple fact. You only have to comply with what has been stated in the published law. Anything, anything mentioned over and above that in, uh, in, in, in a public space by a person being a member of the executive, that it, it doesn't apply unless it's actually been, been reduced and passed into law. Yeah, and then I, I think um, just to tie up the sort of first part of that question, um, if a cabinet member has not issued directions, can the business continue as per only what the regulations say? Um, and, you know, at the beginning of this webinar, we discussed the idea that these regulations are really a uh, an instance of a limitation on normal rights. So, in other words, where the regulations do not deal specifically with an activity um, then you're going to take it that that activity continues to be allowed and to, continues to be permissible. Um, in other words, uh, you know, unless the regulations say otherwise, I would say, yes, you can continue. A business can continue um, until such time as directions come out to, to tell you otherwise. Um, I suppose the exception would be uh, if the regulations said something to the effect of... Um, upon the issue of directions uh, a business may, which as far as I can tell is, is not present in the, the new chapter five, which we are dealing with under alert level two. Um, Peter, anything further from your side? No, nothing from me. Okay, perfect. Well, thanks everyone so much for joining us. This was, I think, yeah, webinar, uh, webinar number eight in our series. Um, we will continue to put these out from time to time. Uh, as further regulations um, 
uh, are published. Um, good luck and enjoy Alert Level 2. Um, yeah, thanks for joining us. Thanks, Peter. Good. Thanks, everyone. Thanks, Matt. See you soon.